Thank you very much for those prayers. Well, we're going to open God's Word together, and uh, it would help me enormously if you had your Bibles open in front of you. It's uh, the Church Bibles on page 884, as we're going to study Luke's Gospel together. Before I start, why don't I pray? Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we are free to read your word in this country. Pray, Heavenly Father, that you will now help us focus our minds on your word and to help us to apply it to our daily lives. And we ask this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it's quite interesting. When I asked Charlie what I was going to be speaking on this morning, he said we're going to do the lectionary uh, this morning, which is quite a novel thing for St. Andrews. And so, uh, and also it's quite novel is that we're looking at Christ the King. So very Anglican this morning. And I'd like to start off by telling you about a friend called Alice, Alice Pitts. Now Alice arrived at university to study modern history. And this is the way that she described what happened to her in that first week. It's called Freshers Week. Despite the fact that I come from a Christian background where both my parents are committed Christians, the full meaning of Christianity never got through to me. I thought it was about going to church, being good, and saying your prayers at bedtime. But when I started as a student, I began going to one of the town centre churches out of force of habit. It was full of students. And one morning after the service, the woman sat next to me, turned around, her face shining with joy and said, oh, isn't it wonderful that there are so many people here this morning to worship Jesus? Her words made me aware of the gulf that was between us. She had said something, a real living faith that I did not have. I felt a fraud for being there and stopped going to church after that. Well, we're going to be coming back to Alice's story a little bit later on, because it doesn't end there, I'm pleased to say. But I would suspect that her experience isn't all that uncommon. Her view that being a Christian is simply a matter of good lies behind the frequent jibes levelled at Christians. You think that you're better than other people. The church is full of hypocrites carrying the implications that Christians aren't all that good after all. And it's based upon what I call the gold star approach to religion. So let me explain what I mean. When I was at prep school, the teacher hit upon what they thought was a brilliant idea to get boys such as myself to do some work by introducing a chart which she put on the wall. And this had all the names of the boys in the class on the left-hand side with a horizontal column beside each name. If a pupil produced some good work, up went a red star in the appropriate column. And after five red stars, a gold star was awarded, and it was the ambition of all of us to get as many gold stars as possible. 
And that is the way that many people, including Alice, saw Christianity. A matter of getting as many gold stars as possible to qualify for heaven. And here is a test question to apply to see whether that is what you and I think this morning. And the question is this. Just supposing that you were to die and come before God and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? How do you think you would respond? And I just want you to think quietly for a moment to yourself. Well, perhaps you would reply something like this. Well, I go to church, um, I pray, I've helped out on the coffee rotor, um, I do the PA, um, I'm not a bad person, I'm really quite good actually, so why shouldn't I come in? In effect, you're asking God to tot up those gold stars, aren't you? I don't know. Is that something that you would do? But let me explain to you why I believe God would never accept that. For a start, it would exhibit the most appalling discrimination on God's part because it would mean that God is only the God of good people. Those who just happen to be fortunate enough to have the right upbringing, taught the right manners, having had the right parents and teachers. But what about those have not had such good circumstances to thrive morally. Secondly, it's very difficult, isn't it, to see how this divine accounting system could work. What's the relative value of the different acts so that the gold stars can be totted up against the black marks? Is one lie equal to helping two people across the street? And what about our motives? If one person, you know, needs help, is that worth 10 points? Do I lose two points um, if I, you know, jump the lights? It's difficult, isn't it? And also, why do Christians think that they've got a monopoly on the gold star system? Unless they think that they get extra ones for enduring church services. No, the whole system really is quite stupid. But thirdly, it reveals the most appalling presumption on our part. For it assumes that it is we and not God who sets the standard for entrance into his presence. But by definition, that is God's prerogative and not ours. And what is God's standard? Well, it is perfection. Jesus said so, didn't he, himself. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But by that criteria, the most celebrated philanthropist the world has ever known is just as much a failure as the most wanton serial killer. And failure, after all, is failure. If the pass rate for an examination is 40%, the one who got 39% fails just as surely as the pupil with 3%. So if being good is not good enough for God, then what is? And how can we know this God now 
as we live in this world and remain with him forever in the next world. Well, the passage that we've had read to us explains it very clearly in Luke 23. And the account of those three men hanging on their respective crosses, in particular, we need to listen into those desperate conversations going on with the ragged breaths between the two on the outside and the third one, Jesus, in the middle. Now, we might think that what we have here is what we see in any occupied country. The occupiers, in this case the Romans, making an example of the downtrodden occupied. The closest example I can think of is like the Nazis in France would round up innocent civilians from a town in which the resistance had just launched an attack upon German soldiers and put them to death to deter further attacks. And so Pontius Pilate decides to do the same with these two men on the left and the right of Jesus. But not so. Luke tells us that they were criminals. Look down at verse 32, will you? Matthew, in his account, also tells us that they were robbers, bandits, the sort of people who would not think twice of approaching you in a dark alley and leaving you battered and bruised to get hold of your wallet or your purse. Friends, these were not nice people. You would not want to live with these men, let alone die with them. Now, they say that tragedy reveals character, but their tragedy revealed they didn't have any. What did they do with their last breath? Well, they took the opportunity to vilify Jesus, as if hanging on a cross was not enough for the pain, as if jeering and the barbed comments of the crowd were not enough to demean him. They too joined in. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. <coughs> Aren't you the Christ, that is the King? Save yourself and us. For a good while, both the thieves played the taunting game. Well, son king, you are hanging here with us. Life is tough on messiahs these days. Come on, what about a miracle now, Galilean? The sneers were interspersed with curses and with groans, which I'm sure you won't find surprising. You would expect it of all the Pharisees who hated Jesus' guts because he put them to shame. You would expect it of the crowd who were being whipped up into a howling mob, baying for blood. You might even expect it of the Roman soldiers who efficiently were dependent upon their cruelty. But surely, surely not from these two hanging on a cross. No wonder the Romans had these two men up on a cross. Their only value was to serve as a public spectacle, to strip them naked so that people will see that evil cannot hide, 
nail their hands so that people will see that the wicked have no strength, to hoist them high so that parents will point and tell their children, that is what happens to you when you do wrong. But whilst the Romans could stop their movements by nailing their hands and their feet to a post, they could not silence their tongues. And so these two men will die as they had lived, attacking the innocent. But in this case, the innocent does not retaliate. In his case, tragedy does reveal character. The one who had opened the eyes of the blind, Jesus, now had his eyes almost blinded. As pulled up, puffed, marked red and blue from the beatings, he strained to see. The one who had enabled the cripple to walk was now a cripple himself, with legs paralysed, pinned to a cross. Admittedly, he wasn't much to look at. Why, he hardly seemed like a human being at all, with the skin hanging off his back and the crown of thorns pressed firmly on his skull, his face smeared with blood. But that was not all that the thieves saw. We hear that Jesus uttered these words. Father, forgive them, for they do not realise what they are doing. In other words, they saw a man at peace. Now, for one of those thieves, his heart remained hard, hard and he continued to hurl the abuse at Jesus. And when you think about it, that is a perfect picture of human sin. Sin is not an unfortunate slip, a regrettable act. It is a posture of defiance against God. Like everyone else in Jerusalem at that time, the thief would have heard of Jesus' teaching, his miracles, the transformed lives, the testimony after testimony that this was no ordinary man, but God in human form. And like we do every day, he does on this last day, and not only ignores God, but despises him. Do not tell me it is not so, but a change took place in the other thief. He recognised something his partner in crime refused to recognise. And what that is we see here. Verse 40. The other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Do you know that in that statement that we have, uh, we have at the heart of what Christians call the good news or the gospel, it is the acknowledgement that I am wrong and Jesus is right, that I have failed and Jesus has not, that I 
deserve to be punished, and Jesus deserves to be set free. So maybe, just maybe, he is the King of Kings after all. Someone human, but divine. And so the thief cries out, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then the heavy head of Jesus turns, their eyes meet, and he hears the words he never expected to hear. As we said earlier this morning, those words of pardon, words of grace, words of hope. I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Now how could Jesus make such an offer that even this man could not refuse? Well, because of what was taking place on that cross, which was hidden from human eyes. Remember, Jesus is innocent and the thief is guilty. Jesus does not deserve to die, but the thief, and indeed all of us, as we rob God of his glory and each other of love, do deserve to die. It is at this point that a miraculous exchange begins to take place. Now just imagine, if you can, the sins of the thief beginning to be transferred over onto Jesus. Small flecks of sin at first, then huge jet black flakes clinging onto him, covering him in layers of moral filth. Every evil thought, every vile act, every cutting remark which revolts God covers his son. And then, at the same instant, the purity of Jesus lifts and covers the dying thief. A sheet of moral radiance wraps around his soul. And so as God the Father looks down from heaven, he sees his son covered with the sins of the world and his moral indignation is poured out upon him, punishing sin. He looks down on the thief and sees the moral purity of his son and the thief becomes a son to him. And what happens to that thief is what happens to all who like him put their trust not in themselves but in Jesus. And I believe the Apostle Paul puts it like this. He, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin, so that in Christ we can be put right with God. And when God sees sin, he can't ignore it. He must punish it or assume it. And that is what he has done through Christ. So I hope now that we can see a little bit more about what Christianity is all about. It is not about morality and rules with us scoring points to be rewarded. It is about a relationship and a love to be enjoyed. It is about our rebellion and God's amnesty. 
Those who rebel against their maker, like the other thief, choosing to live their own way, not God's way, are set on a collision course with him on Judgment Day. And this is what has been a huge challenge to me as I've prepared this. This would include good, upright, moral people who throw the gospel of mercy back into God's face and say, no, I have decided that my good living, my religious deeds, my pleasure is enough for me. And it should be enough for you, God. All of us are like that. But God has declared an amnesty as we see with their second thief. The rebellion has been paid for by God himself. All rebels can go free, but only those who acknowledge their rebellion and ask for that royal pardon that Jesus remember me when you come into your kingdom. Well, it must have been quite a surprise for the angels in heaven on that Good Friday to see that the first person entering into the glorious presence of God, being not a philosopher like Plato, not a rabbi, not an archbishop, but a foul-mouthed, self-centred, greedy thief. And of course, that is what he was, but not any longer. His mouth was full of praise, not scorn. His heart is full of love, not greed. His life is full of service and not self-centeredness. It comes as a shock, doesn't it? And I leave this thought with you. It's one that's been challenging me greatly. To know that heaven is for bad people. And that hell is for good people. Because that is exactly what the Bible teaches. And that is exactly what Alice Pitt was to discover. For in her story, she goes on to say this. The following term, there was a Christian Union mission, and I went along out of curiosity. For the first time, I realised that Christianity is all about a relationship with Jesus. It's our sin that separates us from him, but he took the punishment that we deserve, dying in a place so that our relationship can be restored, provided that we ask for forgiveness and are prepared to turn from our old ways and give him control of our lives so that we can have a relationship with him and receive eternal life. So in concluding, let me ask whether that is true of each and every one of us. I'm not going to be asking whether you're good but whether you are forgiven. I'm not even asking whether you're religious, but whether you have a relationship with Christ. Have you ever come to that point in your life where you have the courage to look into your own heart and see what is there? And perhaps like me, sickened by what you see, saying, I want that dealing with. I want forgiving. I want a new start. I want to get back in touch with the one who made me and sent his son to die for me. Have you done that? Because if not, then whatever you are, 
you are not yet a Christian. Today you have a straight choice facing each and every one of us. You can be like the first thief, boasting of our so-called independence of all the way to the grave, but cursing God. Or you can be like the second thief and take the carpenter at his word when we call out to him and he says, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Amen.